I encourage you to take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 18. Uh, If you go back and listen to the recordings of my sermons, you will discover that they are very monotonous at the beginning. Almost universally, I say, take your Bibles and turn to, that's just what I say. I don't necessarily plan on it, but I do think it communicates something about me personally and about our church. We hold the Bible as being the ultimate and final authority. We hold the Bible as being inerrant and infallible. We believe the Bible is full in its revelation to us about who God is. It is the only standard for our faith. It is the only standard for our practice. I am fallible. The Bible is infallible. Our elders are errant. The Bible is inerrant. So we're not here to listen to the opinions of man. We're here to come back week in and week out to the book, to the B-I-B-L-A-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I almost spelled it wrong, didn't I? Well, this morning we come to John's Gospel, chapter 18, in our ongoing series through this uh, biblical account of Jesus' life and ministry in a message I've entitled, When Kingdoms Clash. When Kingdoms Clash. In John's inspired account, we will see the record of Jesus on trial before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor over the realm of Judea. The Lord Jesus reveals to Pilate some things, and in this conversation, there is actually a confrontation, a clashing, if you will, of kingdoms. And Jesus reveals this, these different divergent kingdoms in verse 36. Notice it real quickly. Jesus answered, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are king. This concept of two kingdoms, of two realms, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God existing simultaneously where we live is all through the New Testament particularly. And it's uh, an underlying foundation for uh, a monumental work of early Christendom by one Augustine of Hippo. Augustine of Hippo, an early Christian theologian and pastor, uh, wrote a book called, or work called City of God. And in that book, uh, Augustine puts forward this clear dichotomy, this division between what he refers to as the city of man and the city of God. I want you to just see a quote from the book. He says, quote, two societies have issued from two kinds of love. Worldly society has flowered from a selfish love which dared to despise even God, whereas the communion of saints is rooted in a love of God. The city of man seeks the praise of man, whereas the height of glory for the other is to hear God in the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own boasting. The other says to God, thou art my glory. Thou liftest up my head. Augustine originally wrote this work in 426 AD. But those principles and those truths ring incredibly true even some 1,500 years later. We can feel as Christians this same tension. We have the tension of living here in this world, 
of functioning in the kingdom of this world, but we are just passing through. We are citizens of another kingdom. We are citizens of another realm, and so we have the priorities of our home nation. But as Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render unto God the things that are God. Again, in the Bible, these two realms, these two cities, as Augustine puts it, are two kingdoms. And in my opinion, I don't know that there's another more telling interaction or confrontation or clash between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God as represented here in the passage before us today. We'll see Pilate, Pontius Pilate, uh, is the one that is uh, interrogating Jesus in this interaction. Now, last week we considered Jesus's initial arraignment from the charges that were being brought against him before Annas, who we understand as the high priest emeritus, if you will. I told you he's something like the godfather of the high priestly family. And he has nothing that he can charge Jesus with, and so he sends him to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who is the active high priest, and the Sanhedrin, the gathering of elders who rule over Israel. Now, John does not record Jesus's trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, or the Sanhedrin. Reason being, his gospel, as I mentioned last week, was the last one written. He assumes you've already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, and so he's presenting to you things that undergird and support his basic theme of his gospel. In that trial with Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, Jesus was falsely accused of things he never did. They brought forth false witnesses to try to bear some type of testimony before Jesus, but they were all dismissed without anything sticking to Jesus. Why? Because he was completely innocent of all the crimes. Well, then Caiaphas, exasperated, turns to Jesus and finally says, tell us plainly, man, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And I want you to notice how Jesus responded as recorded in Mark 14. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And it was with this charge of blasphemy that Caiaphas then sent Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea with the Roman Empire. Now, both the Bible and secular human history and archaeology tell us some things about this individual, Pontius Pilate. If you encounter someone and they say, you know, the Bible is full of myths and legends and fables, uh, obviously they're not speaking intelligently because they've never researched the issue. You could just simply say, well, have you heard of Pilate? Pilate is not just some fabrication in the pages of Scripture. He was an actual living per person who can be uh, seen in history. In fact, as recent as 1961, in 1961, in the city of the remains of Caesarea, which was the uh, location of his palace, Pilate, a stone, a limestone was discovered. I've got a picture of that limestone. It's called Pilate's Stone. Again, this was just 62 years ago. They unearthed this stone, which has Pontius Pilate's name on it. Here's what the inscription says. It's a dedication of his palace to the emperor, to the Caesar over Rome. 
It says, to the divine Augustus Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated this. And so in 1961, it was discovered that, yes, Pontius Pilate was a real person who had a real position as prefect over Judea in a real place at a real time in history, confirming everything the Bible had already been saying for over 1,900 years. The Bible is true. This amazing discovery uh, further reveals things about Pontius Pilate that we can see there in the Bible and in history, that Pilate was both morally weak and brutally cruel in his leading and governing over the people. His harsh policies over Judea often resulted in uprisings and revolts, which he would then subsequently squash very cruelly and brutally. Luke even records in his gospel account that on one occasion, Pilate mixed the blood of humans from Galilee with the blood of the sacrifices at the altar, thereby defiling the temple and making a mockery of the Jewish sacrificial system at the same time. Therefore, the Jews hated Pilate. They hated him. But when it was expedient to use him, they sought to use him. And that's exactly what happens in our passage today. They bring Jesus to Pilate. Now, again, I told you Pilate's home base was Caesarea, but he would often come to Jerusalem when there was a high and holy Jewish festival so that if there was some type of insurrection, some type of revolution, he would be there along with his guards to squash it summarily. So again, John record, John's record skips Jesus's trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and comes right here to him before the governor over Judea, Pilate. And in this account, we see a clear clash of two kingdoms. So let's read the focal passage. This is the word of God. John 18, beginning in verse 28. Then they, that's the leaders over the Jews, the Sanhedrin, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to meet them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters and again called, and Je- called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from, this, from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. When kingdoms clash, 
Pilate, who represents the kingdoms of this world, uh, the city of man, as Augustine described it, and Jesus, who represents the kingdom of God, more represents he embodies completely the kingdom of God. They are starkly contrasted in our passage before us today. We see something of a side-by-side comparison, as it were, a face-to-face comparison. As we consider these kingdoms clashing before us in the passage, there are really three distinctive marks I want to point out that are really the contrast between the two. There are certainly more distinctive marks than I'm going to talk about today between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, but these are the three that are most obvious, in my view, from the passage that I think are relevant for us today. And as we engage with this passage particularly, and as we consider the contrast between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, I think it would be good for us to ask this question on the onset. Here's my question. Are my priorities and tendencies more demonstrative of the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God? We could ask this as a congregation, as a church, Are our priorities as a church, are our tendencies, where we tend to go, what we tend to do, are they more demonstrative of us being a part of the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God? Are we seen? Do we consider ourselves as an outpost of the eternal kingdom of Jesus or do we just see ourselves as an outpost of in the world. Again, three things I want us to consider from this passage. The first distinction between the two is this. Number one, external ritual versus internal righteousness. Now, here's the deal. It's not just Pilate in this passage that represents the kingdom of the world. These Jewish leaders, these chief priests, these uh, members of the Sanhedrin, they are also functioning and acting within the principles of the world. In fact, Jesus, throughout his ministry, confronted, rebuked, corrected, called to repentance the Jewish state because of their worldly practices and worldly mindset. And here, once again, we see the leaders over the people of Israel functioning according to worldly systems. And when you read verse 28... It really is a bit of a head-scratcher. Look at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters in, it was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. I showed you earlier from Mark 14, Matthew also records it in Matthew 26, that when Caiaphas pronounced the blasphemy verdict upon Jesus that they beat him, they mocked him, they abused him, they spit on him so that their saliva was running down the beard of his chin. He was being abused, and now here they bring this abused Jesus that they just beat to Pilate. I point that out to highlight the irony of verse 28. The irony of verse 28 is that they are saying to Pilate, we don't want to enter your palace so that we won't become defiled. We don't want to get any of that that pagan juju to jump on us so that we're not going to be defiled from celebrating the Passover. This is the height of superstition. It's kind of like when you're a kid and you would say, step on a crack, you break your mama's back, right? That's not going to happen. 
Walking into Pilate's residence, just think about this. What is, does this commend the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to, to Pilate? Hey, Pilate, we come in there, but you're really, you're really filthy, and we don't want to come into your home. Of course not. But that was their thought. And here's the, the great irony, is that they're worried about this potential defilement when the innocent lamb of God has just been abused by their fists. He's just been mocked from their lips, and they're worried about stepping in a pagan governor's home. And this is really a warning for us today, Christian. Are we guilty of trying to maintain some type type of external routine, some type of ritual cleanliness to keep up appearances? All the while, there is a deep rot in our souls. Being religious in our programs and being completely unrighteous in the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's a word for that, hypocrite. In fact, that's a word that Jesus used. Just a couple days before this trial, before Pilate, Jesus was preaching in the temple during Passover week with millions of people there. And in that preaching, one of the sermons he preached is known as the seven woes. He pronounced seven woes on the leadership of Israel. I'll just show you two of them because of their relevancy. He says in Matthew chapter 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, here's our word, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Friends, this is the mark of the kingdom of the world. You look good on the outside. Everything's clean and pristine, but there is dead men's bones residing on the inside, full of rot and stench. This is the way we live our lives. We want to put forward this view to the world that we got it all together. We want to make sure we get the perfect Instagram pose with just the right filter so everybody thinks we got it going on. And Jesus says, hypocrite, hypocrite. And the further irony is that, again, they abused and mocked and scoffed this Lamb of God who would, by his very death, remove the necessity for any of these rituals or cleansing requirements. This is the difference between the two kingdoms. External ritual versus internal righteousness. The kingdom of God is not concerned about the outside as much as it is the inside. So because of their ritual, Pilate acquiesces to them. They won't come inside. They won't step across the threshold of his residence. So he comes outside to them. And that leads to this next Distinction we see between these two kingdoms. Number two, evading liability versus 
taking responsibility. Evading liability versus taking responsibility. The religious leaders brought Jesus to Pilate, no doubt hoping for Pilate to just rubber stamp their decision, to just give a quick verdict, a quick sentence. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll crucify him. We'll send him up there to Golgotha uh, this morning, straight away. But instead, he starts asking them some questions. What's your accusation? What's the charge? What are you bringing against this guy? Their response was something like, how dare you, you question our ability to adjudicate our laws? You just rubber stamp what we want you to do. Notice what happens in verse 30. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. In other words, don't ask dumb questions, Pilate. We made the right decision. Don't question our motives. You just go back inside in your ceremonially unclean home and do whatever you pagan governors do. Just let us worry about adjudicating our Jewish laws. Just do what we wanted to do. And notice the exchange that happens in verse 31, very telling about the principles of the kingdom of this world, of which both of them are operating. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now what's happening here? It is the epitome of passing the buck. You take him and you judge him, Pilate. Why don't you judge him with your own laws? Oh, we can't do it because you've eviscerated our right to issue a death sentence. You've got to do it. Well, it's just this ping pong match, right? Or pickleball is the thing is today, right? They're just lobbying back and forth. You do it. No, I don't want to do it. You do it. Evading liability. They say, we can't judge him. Well, you judge him. Which, by the way, this, this reveals their statement is not law for us, lawful for us to put anyone to death reveals the fact that they weren't looking for a fair and judicial trial. They just wanted them dead. They weren't saying, you, you examine the evidence. They just said, you kill them. All the while, standing right there beside them is the spotless lamb of God. While they are busy passing the buck, evading liability, not want to shoulder responsibility, here is Jesus and he is in the process of taking full responsibility for things that were not his fault. This is the gospel. In premarital counseling, I'll often tell the husband-to-be, and I'll even tell new husbands, I'll tell old husbands this. Part of what it means, sir, for you to be the husband, for you to be the father, for you to be the leader of your home is you are the Christ figure of your home. And here's what that means, at least in part. That means as a man, as the leader of your home, you will at times voluntarily, willingly, purposefully take responsibility for things that aren't your fault. That's what it means to be a man. That's what it means to be a husband. That's what it means to be the Christ figure as the father in your home. You're going to take responsibility you're going to bear the brunt of the load for crises you didn't cause. But man, that's what it means to be a man. That's what it means to be a Christian man. And here's the ultimate Christ man taking responsibility for things that are not his fault. Is your sin Jesus' fault? Is it? No, it's not his fault. Did he take 100% responsibility for it? Yes. He did. This is the beauty of the gospel, friends. Christ 
took the punishment in our place. And friends, isn't this the pattern we see in the world today? Isn't this the typical modus operandi of everybody? However we can, we want to shirk responsibility. We want to make sure, well, you got to know, the reason I made this decision is because this thing and this thing and that thing, well, you just got to know, have all the information. Just man up. (laughs) Own it. Bear the responsibility. What did they want to do? They wanted to wash their hands of the whole thing. In fact, that phrase, wash your hands of something, it comes from this episode right here, doesn't it? Matthew records that this is exactly what Pilate did. He found no fault in him. Notice what he did in Matthew 27. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Friends, that's the epitome of not owning it. That's the epitome of shirking the responsibility. Let me ask you, if you kind of ceremonially or symbolically wash your hands in a basin of water, does that absolve you of any guilt of a decision? No, it does not. Don't try that at work tomorrow. Yeah, I know I shouldn't have done that, but I'm washing my hands in this water, so I'm good, right? That's what Pilate's doing here. He's seeking to evade liability and not take responsibility. This is a clear mark of the kingdom of the world. And we see it today all the time, don't we? Particularly in politicians. Last week, I was watching an interview with Piers Morgan, that British uh, journalist who has made a living in the United States of America. There's no hard feelings, Piers. It's okay. Piers Morgan is particularly noted for asking tough questions, whether you're from the right or from the left. And he was interviewing a, I won't say who, a politician. And in that interview, he asked the politician, would you care to explain for me why you said such and such? And the politician said, I never said such and such. Yeah, you did. No, I didn't. And Pierce says, roll the tape. (laughs) They roll the tape, and there's the politician in HD, full color, saying such and such. And after the tape, Pierce said, would you explain why you said such and such? And the politician basically said, I didn't say such and such. (laughs) What? (laughs) You just did. (laughs) They don't want to take responsibility for what they said. They want to pass the buck to someone else. Let them shirk the responsibility. And we learn this tendency from a very early age, don't we? We learn this tendency very young. As children, it's not my fault. Bubba told me to do it. Sissy asked me to come in here and take out all the markers and draw on the wall. It's not my fault. We're always trying to blame shift rationalize. This is a mark of the kingdom of this world. So my encouragement to you, Christian, just own it. Just own it. This is some of the most freeing words you can say. Yep, I blew it. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Eight words that'll change your life. Here's the third characteristic, and we're actually going to spend a little more time on this one. How much time do I got? Oh, I got lots of time. Good. The third thing I want to point out here is we see these contrasts of expedient pragmatism versus eternal propositions. 
Now, I don't want to get too deep into the mud and the mire of 18th century philosophy, <laughs> but, uh, 19th century, actually, philosophy, but I do want to expose you to what was something of a novel idea in the mid-1800s, this philosophy of pragmatism. Formally, it's uh, this, again, a physical, uh, philosophical ideal that arose here in the United States as a dominant way of thinking in our society. Here's how I would describe or define pragmatism. Pragmatism is the way to determine what is true or what is good or what is right by examining the practical results. So pragmatism says it's basically a means to an end. Let's determine if this is the right course of action based solely upon what the end result is going to be. And so, for instance, in the 1800s, you had what's known as the Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution changed the landscape of Western society. And Industrial Revolution, you apply this philosophy of pragmatism to it, then you say, we're trying to get the most products produced in the cheapest way possible for the most people. That's the end result. So anything we can do to get that end result is good and true and right. And because of pragmatism within the Industrial Revolution, it's why we have such prosperity in Western society. It's why today you did not concern yourself with what kind of clothes you were going to wear. You didn't concern yourself with indoor plumbing. Anybody worried about indoor plumbing this morning? You didn't concern yourself about if there's any food in the refrigerator. This was all because of the pragmatic approach in the Industrial Revolution. Of course, pragmatism can cause, and you're going there already in your mind probably, some negative consequences. What were working conditions like during the Industrial Revolution? Good or bad? They were bad. But if the end result is more stuff to more people as cheap as possible, well, then however you got to get there is good. It's seen as true. It's seen as right. We are the producers of most of the food in the world. We feed the world. That's good. We have an ample supply of agricultural products. And I can tell you as a lifetime farmer, this is good. But if the end result is re reached because we, well, we may put some chemicals in there. We may have some genetically modified plants. We may put some some pesticides and herbicides on the crops so we get more production. We put some um, additives in the livestock and some growth hormones in the chickens. That's all right, right? No, it's not. <laughs> but the idea is if we get the end result of the most food to the most people as cheap as possible, then any means is good and true and right. This is pragmatism. Not if you're with me on this concept of pragmatism. Unfortunately, this concept of pragmatism over the last 20 years, really, has infected the church. And the way it's infected the church is leaders and growth experts say, well, the end result is this, so to get this, it must be okay to do that. And so here's what's being said and what's being sold as a bill of goods. If you want to get more people, if you want to get more seats in the pews, if you want to get more um, donors, if you want to get more converts, 
Well, you've got to jettison some of those difficult-to-swallow doctrines that you've been clinging to for 1,950 years. You've got to get rid of some of those ideas that are hard. In fact, one popular pastor down in Atlanta a couple of years ago said that the church in America today should unhitch itself from the Old Testament. What was his rationale? The Old Testament God is hard for the modern man to swallow. This is pragmatism. If we can get this in result, then whatever means we've got to do, then we'll do it. It is pragmatism that has caused churches to acquiesce to society's views on gender roles in the home and in the church. It is pragmatism and a view of the end goal in mind that has caused churches to jettison our beliefs about human sexuality and gender. And so instead you have churches today embracing those false ideas and ignoring the Bible. Why? Because it's pragmatic. But expedient pragmatism is really not a new idea, even in the 1800s. Let me take you back in human history to the very beginning of human history, Adam and Eve in the garden. You have propositional truth versus expedient pragmatism. God did not truly say this proposition, did he? Here's the pragmatism. If you eat, this will be the end result. You'll get good results if you do this. So it's pragmatic. And this has been a mark of the kingdom of this world governed by the king, Satan, the ruler of this present age, for millennia. Oh, back to our focal passage. That's a little history on pragmatism there. We see expedient pragmatism versus at eternal proposition in this clash of kingdoms between Pilate and Jesus. Look, look at the verse 33. I want us to consider the fundamental nature of this kingdom and the differences of the kingdom. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Well, this question was likely an attempt to identify whether or not Jesus was some kind of insurrectionist. Was he trying to mount an overthrow of Roman occupation of Judea? Is he plotting this overthrow? But I do want you to think a moment about just the incredulity of it all. It's unbelievable. Pilate, a mere man, is questioning the God-man. This human being is interrogating his creator. Well, Jesus brilliantly answered his question with a question. Verse 34, Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? In other words, where are you getting your info from, Pilate? Verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? In other words, why are these Jewish leaders so hot and bothered by you? What have you done? What's the issue? What's the deal? Now, this all sets the stage for, again, what I read at the beginning of the message, what I believe is the central statement from Jesus in this passage, verse 36. Look at it again. Jesus answered. Here's his response. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom, in case you missed it, is not 
from this world. That statement really tells us two things about the kingdom. First of all, it is Christ's kingdom. He repeats it again and again. My kingdom, my kingdom. This prisoner standing before this worldly governor, this prisoner who bears no emblems or marks of authority or power or prominence or pomp and circumstance is saying, I've got a kingdom and it's my kingdom. Now, the audacity of this claim was not lost on Pilate. I want you to think about how Jesus was first introduced to Pilate. Here he is, this supposed blasphemer. He had just left Caiaphas' headquarters where he had been beaten, where he had been bruised, where he had been spit upon. They're bringing these charges of insurrection to Pilate about this man, Jesus. And so I just imagine that Pilate is creating a mental image of what this this revolutionary is going to look like. And it's a revolutionary. If you've ever seen a revolutionary, they usually have their chin up, chest out, very proud and arrogant. Pilate calls for Jesus to come in, and he's bruised. His beard is still wet from their spittle. His hands are bound. He's shabbily dressed, and he's bowing. And the tense of the Greek, there's a particular emphasis on the pronoun you. It should be read, you are a king? You got anybody else here? You? You're the guy that's supposedly this rabble-rouser, this trouble. You are a king? This is the way of thinking that's not restricted to Pontius Pilate, but people today. They hear about Jesus. They hear his message. They hear his word, and they dismiss it. You, a king? Come on. What else you got? Jesus is just not some nice religious model to be admired. He insists, I'm a king. My kingdom. But the second aspect about his kingdom is this. It's not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It is not a fleshly kingdom. It is not an earthly kingdom. And if it is not of this world, then it must be of some other origin. It's from the origin of heaven. And what this means is that his realm, his rule, his reign is not over the physical aspects that happen in our day-to-day lives of politics and business and industry. His rule and his reign is primarily over the souls of men, over people. And you can say, well, I'm not religious. I'm not particularly spiritual. Does that alleviate his rule over your soul? Not at all. In fact, notice how Jesus put it himself in Matthew chapter 10. He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's the him? Jesus. He's the king. 
He's the ruler. And his kingdom is over the souls of men. And the point Jesus is making that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Pilate, you're a political figure. My kingdom is not a political kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. It is of another world. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, not a political kingdom. And friends, we need to remember that. We are not fighting for political kingdoms. We're not struggling for political kingdoms. We're not seeking to gain political power. We as Christians are functioning in a spiritual kingdom. We need to hear this today in 2023. Jesus says, if my kingdom were a political kingdom like yours, my followers followers would be taking up arms. They'd go to Washington. It's not a physical, political kingdom. Now, caveat. (laughs) Although Jesus' kingdom is not earthly, but otherworldly, it does not mean that his kingdom has little day, present day significance. It has eternal present day significance. Significance. Look again at verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Let's get back to this concept of pragmatism, and Pilate perfectly demonstrates the worldly value of expedient pragmatism. He's trying to do whatever he can do to get rid of this nuisance that is invading his perfectly good weekend plans. Pragmatism. The best results possible for himself. Pragmatism. Meanwhile, Jesus is perfectly representing the kingdom of God, by proclaiming unchanging propositional truth. A couple phrases to consider. First, Jesus says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. There is a deep theological truth embedded in Jesus' statement here. In theology, it's known as the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is the perfect union of the nature of man and the nature of God in one person, Jesus Christ. This concept says that Jesus is fully man, 100%, and Jesus is fully God, 100%. You math majors say, well, that don't work. You can't have 200%. Well, he is. (laughs) That's why he's God. And notice what Jesus says. He says, I was born. What does that mean? Who's born? Human beings are born, right? All of you were born. Jesus was born. He's a human being. He's man. But notice what else he said. For this purpose, I came into the world. What does that imply? He was not in this world. He was in another world. He was somewhere else, and he came into this world. So just in this one sentence, Jesus is saying, I'm fully man, I was born, and I'm fully God, I came from another world. While Pilate is focused on his expedient pragmatism, let's get done what we need to get done Jesus is putting forward these propositional truth claims. In fact, Jesus says it is the truth for why he came into the world. And further, here's who listens to Jesus. He says next, everyone who is 
of the truth listens to my voice. If people don't listen to the voice of Jesus, they are not of the truth. Those who are of the truth listen to Jesus. And then this reply that Pilate gave to him is classic but revealing. He replied, what is truth? What is truth? I don't know if there's a better question that could be the motto of this millennium. What is truth? I mean, really, does anybody know what truth is? I mean, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And there's no absolute truth, is there? That saying is an absurd statement. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Why is it absurd? Because whoever says it is making an absolute statement of truth, which means they're absurd. There is absolute truth. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Pilate dared to ask, what is truth? When just 12 hours earlier, in the upper room discourse, Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 6, I am the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? It's standing right in front of you, Pilate. When kingdoms clash, and they clashed here in this passage, and we see this stark contrast between the two, and we see the marks of the world's kingdom, and we see the marks of Christ's kingdom. And I want to return as we close to the question I asked at the beginning of the message. It's this right here. Are my priorities and tendencies more demonstrative of the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God? In other words, are you more concerned with how you appear to other people than what's going on inside your heart? It's a good question. Do you have a tendency to blame shift, to not own it, to shirk responsibility? I can't help it. That's just the way I was raised. That's just my personality. Or are you the ultimate pragmatist? Whatever the shortest distance to that end, whatever we got to do to get the result we're looking for, whatever's expedient, let's do that. Or do you rest your entire existence on the propositional truth of who Jesus is? Jesus told us where we could find truth. The previous chapter, John 17, 17, he's praying to the Father for you, and he says, Father, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. Jesus told the Roman governor, everyone who's of the truth, they listen to me. Everyone who is of the truth, they hear my voice. They hold to his teaching. My question for you as we close, are you listening to Jesus? Do you hear his voice? All those who reject the truth of Jesus, make no mistake about it, they will believe one day. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
on the last day, when every sin is exposed in the light of Christ, Pontius Pilate will finally have the answer to his question, what is truth? Because it will be staring right in front of him. Those who have been cleansed by the saving blood of Christ through faith, revealed in the truth of Jesus, will revel in that eternal glory forever. Here's the deal. There will be a final clash of these kingdoms. And in that final clash, it's a winner take all. Everyone will finally see the truth. In fact, that leads to my last thought. Everyone will believe the truth about Jesus either now or in eternity. But mark this. You might want to write this down. If you wait till eternity to believe in Jesus, it's too late. It's too late. 